Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is hopefully October 9th, 2017, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. Now, the reason I say it's hopefully October 9th is if you were listening last week, you would know that I am out of the country right now. I'm in North Africa where I have very little service. Um, Hopefully, I will have been able to upload this episode on time, but I'm pre-recording the intro back at home with all of my equipment so I don't have to lug it halfway across the world. That said, um, I guess we will see when we see. Uh, We have a great episode this week, and I want to thank all of you who made Talk Nerdy possible by rating and reviewing in iTunes, in other um, podcast services, by shopping in the Talk Nerdy store. I promise I will get your shipments out to you as soon as I get home. Um, And by supporting the show via carasantamaria.com, where you can find the Talk Nerdy store and also the PayPal portal, and via patreon.com slash talk nerdy. I'll give you guys individual shout outs when I'm back. I haven't been able to um, to check because I'm time traveling and recording this early. So let's jump right into this week's episode. I had a wonderful, wonderful chat with Tristan Gooley. He's the author of the brand new book, How to Read Nature, Awaken Your Senses to the Outdoors You've Never Noticed. Now, he's a naturalist in the truest sense. He spends time outdoors. He keeps his senses open, his eyes, his ears, his nose, his mouth, you know, his um, his touch sensations. And he uses all of that to start to develop really a sixth sense about what nature is trying to tell him. And I know that sounds wooey, but it's actually quite scientific. And we're going to discuss that throughout the show. We really talk about that lost art of natural navigation and a lot of tips and tricks that we can utilize that we've sort of forgotten um, over the course of relying heavily on technology and sort of separating ourselves from nature. So this one was especially exciting for me to prep for my trip. Um, so I hope you don't mind me being a little indulgent in asking uh, specific questions about heading to North Africa. Um, but gosh, such a fun chat, such a great book. So without any further ado, here he is, Tristan Gooley. Well, Tristan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Cara. I'm really excited because you are um, you're a multi-talented author in that you don't just do reporting and writing, but you have true expertise in the field that you write about. And I don't think that we've done much on my show kind of um, uh, down and dirty naturalism yet. And so I think that this is going to be a really fun deep dive into kind of news you can use, you know, tips and tricks for everyday people who really do fancy themselves naturalists to get out there and to connect with Mother Nature in a way that maybe they don't feel comfortable doing right now. That's really what you focus on, isn't it? Yeah, my work is is different from most naturalists in the sense that there's a lot of great work going on out there, which is talking about how wonderful everything is and how beautiful everything is and how we, we need to do more immersing ourselves and connecting with nature. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm all for that. I, I'm totally supportive of that movement. But the thing that makes my work a bit different is it's about things you can actually look for. And it's using the part of our brain which hasn't been used outdoors for quite a while, which is deductive, you know, thinking. It's 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 solving puzzles, using using clues, seeing signs. It, it's all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And so before we even get into some of the nitty gritty of it, I'd love to know, you know, how you first became enamored with the natural world and really where you started to hone all of those skills? Well, I've got to be honest. I was um, um, what some people call a poacher turned gamekeeper in the sense that I, 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 I loved adventures from a very young age. I'd see a hill and think um, might be more interesting at the top than the bottom. And, and I'd stand across a, a lake and think, I wonder what's on the other side. And the, the hills became mountains and the lakes became oceans. And uh, and if I'm honest, early on, nature was the green stuff that got in my way. I was like thinking, <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want to be up there and there's all this undergrowth getting in my way. Get out of my way. You know, I've got a mission here. Uh, and then what happened was I, I developed conventional navigation skills and I'd set myself goals. And I think, right, you know, I want to do this this year. And, and so I was learning how to get small boats and small planes and walking. And, and the journeys were getting bigger and bolder and that sort of stuff. And then what happened was in about my mid-20s, I was taking on some quite ambitious stuff. Uh, and I suddenly noticed that it didn't feel as exciting as it had done when I was a kid. And so I was a bit distraught. Yeah, I was, I was just a bit upset about that. I was like, wow, I did, you know, I'm doing some crazy thing. It's, it's a thousand miles start to finish. It's going to take me 10 days. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be exciting. And yet it felt a bit flat. And then by chance, I came across the idea of finding my way using nature, natural navigation, and so I just tried it out and I just did one mile across, across some local woods using the, the trees as my map and the stars as my compass. And suddenly the excitement was back. So that was the, the sort of the big, the big turning point. Oh, I love that. It really is going back to our roots. I mean, we have so much technology. We have so many um, devices that in many ways do keep us alive. But then we think back to the idea that, you know, people lived for a long time before electricity and when a terrible disaster, you know, strikes like it's been happening a lot over here in um, in North America um, between the hurricanes and the earthquakes that we've seen and people are left without power for weeks, maybe months on end. There's a real concern that most people are going to suffer deeply and potentially even die. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And um, we're, we're hearing and seeing on the news, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the devastation of the, the elements uh, on, on your side of the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, our, our sort of feelings of, of, of where the communities affected. And it, 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 it's it's interesting from the perspective of this this broader, broad, broader area, because I think there are two parallel but different um, shifts in, in philosophy towards the outdoors going on. One of them is the necessity side. So when there are, you know, um, emergencies uh, and, and there are disasters, it reminds people that things don't always go uh, as well as we'd like them to. Yeah. And so that, yeah, and there's a, a, a sort of niche community, I don't know if you've come across them called preppers, who, who, who kind of, you know, they assume um, that it, it's all going to go, you know, uh, uh, badly. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and, yeah. We have whole yeah. TV shows dedicated to doomsday preppers <laughs> over here. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we I think we got it from you, and, and like a lot of stuff, it, it it flows that way. But if I'm honest, my, my work is is actually trying to step a little bit away from that because whilst things like natural navigation and other outdoor fundamental skills can be used in those situations, you know, hopefully they're not going to they're not going to impact most of us. Whereas 
everybody spends a bit of time outdoors, you know, even if it's 10 minutes in the park, you know, on, on a busy work day or something. And actually, my work is much more about saying, instead of seeing that as a time when your brain is meant to totally shut down, there are a lot of people, not necessarily everyone, but a lot of people who relax by letting their, their, their brain play a bit. So mm-hmm. if you think of people who do crosswords or Sudoku, all that sort of stuff, you're, you're relaxing by letting your brain go at a nice kind of puzzle solving speed. And my work's more about sort of saying, well, instead of sort of staring into the sky thinking, right, that, that's it, the brain's got doesn't need to work in this environment anymore, we can say, why don't we just ask the question, which way am I looking? And you suddenly find there are quite literally 1,000 clues, you know, within a, within a stone's throw. And, it, and it's just good fun. Absolutely. And you don't have to live, you know, on the edge of a, of a forest or a large lake in order to truly experience kind of what nature has to offer, do you? You can even find these things in a city. Absolutely. The philosophy applies absolutely anywhere that you can you can see a little bit of the outdoors. So if you stare out of an office window and ask yourself that same question, which way am I looking? There'll be clues in the sun. There'll be clues in the way the clouds are moving. There'll be there'll be clues in the way people are moving because we're just animals with 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 you know funny plumage. You know we dress ourselves up and try and kid ourselves. We're not. But if you just <laughs> yeah, if you just take a, a nice simple urban example. Um, well, if we if we if we take it back to our roots a little bit, people were able to explore planet Earth partly by observing animal behaviour. So we now know that many of the Pacific Islands were were colonised um, almost certainly by leaning on bird behaviour. So if you can imagine being on an island, you see one bird flying in a certain direction, you don't read too much into it. But if after ten years you notice thousands of birds fly in one direction and then six months later they fly back in the opposite direction. It doesn't doesn't you know take our, our ancestors long to clip. There's something out there, um, and if we if we take that logic and, and that approach into the city, if you are totally lost in a in a big city and you're just trying to get some handle on where one big landmark is, if you walk against the flow of people in the morning or with the flow of people late in the afternoon, you'll find a station or transport hub, and and so you've made a map out of the way people are walking. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it reminds me a little, do you remember those, um, those videos? I want to say they came out in the eighties, the Koyaanisqatsi movies and no, you don't know what I'm no, talking no, about. No, do you? No, I'm, I'm, I'd, love, I'd love to say yes. I have no idea, but I must seek them out. They sound like something I might enjoy. Oh, they were just beautiful. They were these um, experimental films that came out in 1982. And it was a lot of kind of time-lapse photography was set to a beautiful um, a beautiful score. There was, um, I think Koyana Scotsi is the one that a lot of people remember. Yeah, it was, it was composed by Philip Glass. Koyana Scotsi, Life Out of Balance. And it was slow motion and time-lapse of cities and and landscapes and it showed like movement and things. And there were, there, there was a series, I think of three of these different films. Oh yeah. Pawanaskatsi and Nakoikatsi, I think, um, which I'm assuming are like native American terms, but it, it really gave you that, that sense that there are natural patterns, you know, that they're like, we are little ants marching around building our own maps and having our own um, intrinsic navigation, even if we're not necessarily physically reading a paper map or using a GPS. Oh, I love that. And um, I was about to say, it's probably something I've seen, but maybe didn't know the name of. But when you're describing it, I love the sound of it. And I'm not sure I have seen it. So I'll, I'll have to search that out. Oh, I absolutely recommend it. Um, it it's really great. So, so um, 
I just want to point to the fact, because I would be remiss if I didn't, that you have a new book. It's coming out October 3rd, so by the time this podcast airs. And I think when this podcast airs, just so that everybody knows, at this point they will have known already, um, I will be in um, in the Sahara. <laughs> and so we will see exactly. I'm hoping that this will actually go live on um October 9th as planned, but depending on connectivity issues, because I will be in Morocco, I will probably have some Wi-Fi when I'm in certain hotels, but if I'm out in the desert, I know we'll be camping one or two nights. Um, we may not be very connected. So that's just a little, um, uh, that said, uh, you do have a book coming out on October 3rd called How to Read Nature, Awaken Your Senses to the Outdoors You've Never Noticed. So in this book, are you really, and this is just one of many in kind of a series of these um, personal naturalist books that you've written, and we'll touch on a few of them in a moment, but is this book mostly focused on just ways to open your eyes, your ears, your nose, your, your tongue to all of the things that nature has to offer you? Yeah, it's it's in a sense it's um it's a slightly sneaky book and and what I'm trying to do is 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 trick people into uh, enjoying nature by getting past all of the obstacles that that you know that it's that poacher turned gamekeeper thing again because if if somebody had said to me 25 years ago um find nature interesting I would have resisted it automatically I was like don't tell me what to find interesting you know whereas. <laughs> Uh, and I think we're all like that and it's fair enough. Um, and so this book is sort of, it, it's, it's using all of the, the fascinating ways into nature that I've learned that you, you, you know, so, um, just let me give you one example. One of the exercises that's, that's in it. If you, if you go for a, a really short walk, I mean, really short, like three minutes and just write down at the end of it, a few of the things that you noticed, um, then do exactly the same walk again, but, but this time, You've got to force yourself not to look at things that are showing any motion at all. So you're not allowed to look at a flickering leaf. You're not allowed to look at a person walking or a car moving or a cloud moving or anything like that. And then note, note down the things that you see. And it's just the start of sort of effectively looking at our sort of our senses, our hardware and, and our brain, our software in a, in a slightly different different way. Because our senses feed so much information to our brain that our brain has evolved to filter out almost all of it. So this is one of those exercises that, that kind of overrides that and says, no, wait a minute, I'm going to choose what I focus on. Let's, let's not filter everything out. Here. And because motion was an indication of something that could be a threat or an opportunity in, in historical evolutionary terms, if we say, right, we're not going to look at that, we start to notice things that we could go our whole lives without seeing. So you start to see things that were right in front of you and have been for years, but your brain has not allowed you to look at. So it's just one example of, of how, you know, we can kind of trick ourselves to have a, have a slightly more interesting experience. Oh, I love that. And it really does build upon a theme that I think we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is that we sort of evolved um, to experience our world the way that it has been I mean, not necessarily presented to us. I think we tend to speak in these very like anthropocentric terms, but the way that our world has been relevant to us, right? So um, historically, we were looking out for threats. We were looking out for sources of pleasure, of pain, of poison. And 
it really kind of um, extends to the very reason that we're not good at risk analysis, the very reason that very, very large things and very, very small things are quite difficult for us to comprehend. Um, things that are microscopic or even smaller, atomic, um, very large distances when we talk about astrophysics are quite difficult for us to understand because they sort of don't exist in the evolutionary plane that we um, that we've been experiencing our whole lives and I think that this this comment that you made really piggybacks that that when you just go outside and you just open your eyes your ears your nose whatever senses you have available to you personally we have this um, this problem of accommodation you know it's the same reason we can't feel our shoes all day because if we could yeah. feel our shoes all day, it would not be very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so if we can de-accommodate ourselves by just focusing our attention, we'll see and hear and smell and taste things and feel things that we didn't even realize were there. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm working with that uh, and occasionally trying to, trying to rattle cage a little bit by by getting us to to come at things in an entirely different angle. So another example would be that if, if again, if anyone had said to me many years ago, you know, uh, connecting with nature is wonderful, I'd sort of try and be polite and smile and think what a vacuous thing to say. <laughs> um, but but if, if, you know, whatever our interests are, we, we are human beings. That's the only thing that, that, you know, we could say for certainty at this point in terms of connecting with nature. But as human beings, we couldn't exist. Uh, our, our psychological makeup dictates that we must be interested in certain fundamental things because there are there are certain things that have kept us alive in the past and actually still linger and and are part of our view of the world today so an example would be shelter you know um you know tens of thousands of years ago if if we couldn't make a shelter we'd be, we'd be dead within within hours possibly uh, and now it's easy to think well what's the relevance of that you know we can we can go through our whole lives and not build a shelter but we still live in homes and so Part of our, our makeup is an interest in what makes the home the home we want. So our, our ancestors might have been thinking, okay, we're not going to sleep under a beech tree because we know beech branches fall and kill people. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the ancient view. But the modern view might be something like, I want a, a cool, clean, light look, so I'm going to use pine wood. Or I want a deep, rich, complex look, so I'm going to use cherry wood. And actually those two things are the same part of the brain. It's the same part of our sort of you know, our, our ancestral um, psychological DNA. I don't even know the right expression at this moment, but I think, I think you know what I mean. That, Absolutely. That, uh, yeah, and people who aren't interested in the home might be interested in travel uh, or adventure or anything like that. And natural navigation is, is the way back. Or if you're interested in food, foraging is the way. So if you go up to somebody and say, try foraging, it's fun. Some people will be receptive to that, and they're the people who, who own a lot of cookbooks. Uh, but, but a lot of people aren't. And my book is saying, if you're not interested in that, that's quite normal, and that's the majority of people. But everybody has an interest. Uh, they just don't perhaps realize that it extends from nature. So my book's about trying to find, find the route back to that, that original sort of um, um, interest. It's so neat, you know, and, and it's true because we do use terms that actually harken back to that. You know, we talk about people nesting when they're when they're getting ready to have a child and having this new interest yeah. in like making sure the nursery is exactly like so. And that's what we did historically with, you know, sticks and leaves and shit. 
yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we think we're you know sophisticated and you know um, particularly in the you know the age of technology, um, you know really you know forcing a, a bigger way into our lives but actually we you know food goes in one end it comes out the other way we we reproduce <laughs> we're, we're animals oh yeah oh <laughs> definitely we are so animals and you know i think all of us have and not all of us but many of us have experienced sort of the hard truth of nature when we've left home and gone someplace quite far away and you know to an alien landscape or a place where we don't speak the language and maybe there's much more quote unquote nature where we're headed than we're used to back home if we live in the city but the truth of the matter is it, we can experience this even if it feels quite normal to us even if it feels um quite in our backyard. And I love that you offer those kinds of tips and tricks in, in your new book. Um, all of your books, though, and you have several. I'm seeing here you've got um, The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, which I think we'll touch on quite a bit, How to Read Water. Um, you've got The Natural Navigator. And of course, The Natural Navigator has all sorts of s- sort of like spin-off-y, like you've got like a pocket guide and um, a bunch of different editions of it online, I'm noticing. Yeah, yeah. It was the natural navigator that, that, that changed my life because I was teaching these skills. Well, to start start with, I collected them. I was, um, I was sort of uh, going from ancient sources one day, you know, reading about how Odysseus found his way across the Mediterranean by keeping the, the Arctos, the bear constellation, um, on his left. That's how he, he kept going east. And then the next minute I'm reading, I'm reading something in a science journal that's been published 24 hours before. And I'm just collecting all of the stuff. And, you know, um, that's why I love the, the name of your, 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 um, your show, your podcast, because, you know, I get, <laughs> I get accused of being nerdy the whole time. And, oh, yeah. and you know, I, I, I wear it as a badge. I wear the pride um, because I, I, I collected all this stuff. And like anybody who's, 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 you know, ready to admit they're a bit nerdy that you have a moment where you think maybe I'm the only person in the world who finds this interesting. And maybe <laughs> I'll just, I just keep it under this, <laughs> just keep it under this little bush here. And, and, and what I did is I just set up a course to teach it. And I was just ready for the world to tell me, you know, in, in, in the way it's, it, it can do that it had no interest in my interest. And I just needed to get real and get on with things that everybody else found interesting. And that was, 10 years ago and I, 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 haven't, I haven't stopped since and so I was teaching this stuff to people and then a publisher very kindly sort of dropped me a line and said uh, you know there might be more than a few dozen people interested in this uh, and so I wrote the book with this collection uh, and and yeah it, um, I'm just so grateful it, it's, it's been really popular in, in the States in the UK and, and in many other countries. I love that so you you legit have a natural navigation school yeah, it's it's a, a sm- as small as a school gets because I I like being sort of footloose. So I could, in theory, have started employing people and and you know taking on buildings and stuff. But it's just me, and where there's an interest, I go and teach. Although being honest, these days, as a result of the the success of of, of the books, I've become more of a, a writer and and, co- and communicator. And it sounds um, ridiculously sort of overblown, but I. I'm, I'm, I'm the champion. I'm almost like, I feel like the ambassador for this weird subject because, you know, I just, I just think it's so much, it, it's such a enjoyable way of learning stuff that adds a, a, a layer to our lives. Uh, and so aside from it being the job, it's, it's, it's the passion. And I, 
uh, yeah, I, I jump up and down and make a lot of noise about it, basically. <laughs> it's so great. Looking at your website, you have this great site nav on the side. Like you have a site nav at the top so people can learn about you and see your talks and, and buy your books and all the great things that are usually on somebody's website. But you have this great site nav on the side that says, be guided by nature, sun, moon, stars, sea, plants, animals, weather, city, extreme, extraordinary, and water. It's so great that you offer, that you've really been able to dig deep into all these different navigational tools. And really, it's partially about how to find your way out of a forest or how to, you know, get back to where you started from. But it's also partially about how to experience the breadth and the depth of the nature that's surrounding you, isn't it? Yeah, that's 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 spot on, because I think um, I, I, I think I've discovered I'm not the only person in the world who doesn't who doesn't want to approach nature in a sort of airy philosophical way, but I've discovered through a practical interest, through nuts and bolts, actually my philosophy and experience have changed dramatically. So a good example would be once somebody knows how to find north using the stars or or a tree or, or flowers or, or insects, it, it starts as a kind of, okay, I find that quite interesting as a practical exercise. Let's see if it works. Uh, they go and do it a couple of times and then it starts to work. And then They'll do something which I did many years ago, which is, you know, not a smartphone when I did it. But but these days people probably use the compass on a smartphone or a traditional compass and they go, oh, yeah, that method for finding the North Star works because that star is actually north because this piece of equipment is telling me it is. Yeah. And, and then yeah, and, and the next step, which is the kind of accidental philosophical change, which is when you suddenly realize that the, the star is not just a little bit more reliable than the kit, but infinitely more reliable. Because if the North Star isn't North, there are an awful lot of other things you know, going wrong in the universe that we need to worry about <laughs> than, than, our, than our smartphone not working. So, so that's what happened to me is I, I check that the North Star was North because the compass told me that it was North. And then about six months later, I realized that when the needle didn't point at the North Star, I realized the compass was bust, the sky wasn't. And that suddenly you suddenly go, oh, wow. The universe works even when our kit doesn't. I love that. Uh, and, you know, it, it makes me think that probably throughout this entire experience, and I've got to admit, I'm sort of one of those people that you described at the beginning who's like only just now becoming more interested in nature. I'm quite interested in sort of urban nature and urban wildlife living in Los Angeles with a park right behind me. I live right on the kind of footsteps of Griffith Park, um, where we have quite a lot of diverse plants and animals. But I'm also in the middle of a very big city. Um, and I'm one of those people who, you know, super outdoorsy people who like wear Birkenstocks and are like, dude, yeah, we're going to camp every weekend. I'm like rolling my eyes. But at the same time, I'm, I'm becoming much more interested in it. Um, and I would have to assume, and this has not happened to me yet, and hopefully it does, especially after reading all of your books, um, that there's another change that takes place, which is you start to get an intuition that's guided by all of the knowledge that you've gleaned where you just start to feel north or you just start to feel the right way out or you you start to be able to be guided by your instincts because those instincts are coming back into the forefront of your mind when they've been suppressed for so long this is really spooky because that's where a lot of my work has has taken me it it for me it started with with you know quite quite big nuts and bolts and clunky sort of techniques kind of like okay there's more tree on the south side you know okay yeah i can see that and then what happened was um you know a few years ago i was driving along a road 30 miles an hour 
my mind was sort of on a meeting or something like that, and I wasn't thinking about nature at all. And just suddenly I sensed south. And out of the corner of my eye, I'd picked up what I what I call the check shape, because branches on the north side of a tree grow closer to vertical and branches on the south side grow closer to horizontal because because phototropism, tropism growth, photo light, the way, way all plants grow towards the light just gives nature these, these shapes. Um, and so that was kind of the science and the kind of the, you know, I'd looked at this, this pattern, the shape so many times that my brain... Um, you know, some people call it the difference between slow thinking and fast thinking or system one or system two, but none of that's terribly important. The, the interesting thing is, once we get used to looking for certain things and we practice it, our brain has evolved to take the shortcut. So that's exactly what happened is I was just driving along and I sent south and a tree out of the corner of my eye that I wasn't even looking at properly. And that's exactly as you're saying. It was, and I'm convinced, you know, prior to the the um, industrial and revolution and, and prior to the agricultural revolution, that's how our ancestors all sensed the world. They didn't walk out of a morning and go, I'm going to look for some interesting clues in the, in the way the grass has been bent by the wind. They just sensed direction, even if there was the labels didn't pop into their head. They weren't thinking, oh, this grass is telling me that the that, that southeast is that way. They just sense direction, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure, because it was a pre-scientific era, so nobody had actually taken the time to, or at least we don't know if they had, we don't have good records to show, to fully document and systematically make those um, make those uh, recordings. But people just knew. They just knew these things because they experienced it all the time. And like you said, our brains are so freaking good at schemas. That's what they do. Our brains figure out the shortcut and they can, they can go there and it's completely done subconsciously. We don't even realize that we're doing it, but we have that sense. You know how you just have a sense when you're going home as opposed to when you're going someplace new. It feels familiar and it feels comfortable. I'm headed home now. It's probably the same thing for the compass. It's probably the same thing for a lot of these different navigational um, experiences. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsors of this week's episode, starting with Eight Sleep. Are you guys looking for a new mattress? Have you thought about buying one online? I mean, even there, it can be pretty overwhelming with all the options available. But there is one that stands out. It's the Eight Smart Mattress. And the reason it stands out is because it's the same price, the same comfort, and just as well-rated as all the best beds in a box online. But it has these incredible tech features, and it helps you sleep because of it. It's got sleep tracking. It's got a Wi-Fi-enabled bed warmer, and it's even got a smart alarm. And at just $699, the 8 Smart Mattress is honestly the best deal that I've found. You get a lot more and you pay less thanks for all of the cool technology that's added. So get the 8 Smart Mattress and start sleeping smarter. Visit 8sleep.com nerdy and use the code nerdy to get $100 off all mattresses on the website, plus free shipping and free returns. That's 8 E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com slash nerdy. And don't forget the offer code nerdy. I also want to thank Brilliant.org for their generous support of this week's show. Brilliant is exactly how it sounds. It's brilliant. It's a problem-solving website that teaches you how to think smarter, how to critically think, how to think like a scientist. You can dive in and you can solve 
problems that are anywhere from easy to challenging. And I'm going to be honest, they're really challenging. So you won't get stuck on this website. I promise. You can check out a bunch of cool courses like Physics of the Everyday, The Joy of Problem Solving. My favorite right now is Logic. You can always dust off those logic skills. I know that they don't get used all the time. Um, we wish that they got used more often, but when we are ready to use them, sometimes they're a little rusty. So this is a great way to, you know, keep your mind really sharp. Go to brilliant.org slash talk nerdy and you can try it for free, you guys. Absolutely. I don't know what you're waiting for. It's so much fun. It's to, it's like my version of video games because I always feel a little smarter and I don't know, a little more humble after I visit the site. So one more time, guys, that is brilliant.org slash nerdy. All right, let's get back to the show. Novelty is requires more focused attention, right? Because we're, just, we're someplace we've never been before. We need to be on the on the alert. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This is really exciting stuff. I, I love this because novelty, as you're saying there, it, it's shorthand for our, our unconscious brain having recognized the pattern and spotted something that doesn't fit into it and then pushing that back to the conscious and asking it the question, why doesn't this fit? It might be important. And, I, and then we look at it. And if I give you a couple of examples of, you know, an ancient and then a more contemporary, you know, experience of the same thing, if, if I'm in the woods, sometimes I can tell if a deer is looking at me, even though it's behind me, which starts to sound a bit like, oh, that's totally weird. But if I then <laughs> explain, <laughs> yeah, it does sound a bit kind of, you know, is that far-fetched? Is, is this guy claiming to have a sixth sense because I'm, I'm tuning out at this point because that's all nonsense, you know. But, but actually, if I explain the, the kind of steps of how our ancestors and how, you know, you know occasionally I, I'm, I'm trying to emulate that uh, in a more contemporary context, imagine you're sitting in a, in a cafe in a city with your back to the window, um, and um, one of one of the you know a waiter comes along and, and and pours your coffee, and as they're doing it, you just get the sense that somebody outside is looking at you, uh, and then you 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 go home and you don't think much more of it, uh, and a few hours later, your friend calls and says, oh, "I was driving by really slowly, and I saw you in that cafe, and I was trying to get your attention, but you know because of the traffic, I had to keep moving," and you start piecing it together. Oh, so they were in the car, and. And the waiter is pouring the coffee, notice somebody gesticulating. I notice the waiter pausing when they're pouring the coffee. And through the body language, my brain told me there's something going on behind. Somebody's probably looking at me. And so you suddenly realize that's not rocket science. This is all doable. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same in the wild. It's just getting used to, to different signs, noticing that the, um, you know, that the bird sounds change. Uh, and and the, the the direction of the wind and all of the patterns around you are telling you that something's changed behind you. And the most likely thing is, you know, your brain suggests the most likely thing to fill the pattern. Um, and in that instance, it, it might be a deer. Um, and it's exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, and I think that there are a lot of people who have a really good development of that that use it in the modern world. People like poker players, for example, or if you've ever, you know, obviously we think of it as bullshit and woo, but there are people who are very good cold <laughs> readers, people who are like psychics who are quite good at it. And it's not because they actually are psychic and it's not because they actually have a special power. It's because they're so good at reading these micro expressions that people give them and they can tell when they're on 
a, a good track or a bad track and they know when to change course and things like that because they're just really dialed into that. And the truth is we absolutely needed that historically. I mean, we are so used to being out of nature, right? We're so used to being in this sort of bubble of, of civilization that if we went out into the wild, we would probably be the last ones to know that there was a lion tailing us. Like all the other animals would have cleared out, right? We would have heard their calls. They would have rustled in the yeah. bushes and we would have never even noticed those kinds of things unless we spent the time to, to open our eyes and to not so much develop that intrinsic kind of experiential instinct, um, but to bring it back to the surface. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And let, let me give you a, a fun sort of psychic in inverted commas example of that in, in practice. Um, when I when I walk into, you know, the local woods, which I'm sat at the edge of now, I can tell when I see a bird and I walk towards it, I can tell whether the, the bird is a resident and I'm in its patch or whether it's a visitor. Um, and the, the behaviors are very easy to look for and very easy to recognize. A bird will flee more easily if, it, if it's trespassing and it won't come back, whereas uh, a lot of the songbirds here, they're very territorial, and what they'll do is they'll hop away, but then ever shorter distances, and if you keep pushing them, they fly over you back to the, the center of their patch. So just by noticing how far they fly away and whether there's a sort of elasticity there, you can you can just sense intuitively, oh, okay, I'm in your patch. Yeah, sorry, you know. <laughs> um, but... But the same stuff you can do, you know, in a, in a much more contemporary context. If, you, if you're um, in a city just watching people, you can tell whether they're visitors or locals. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people listening are going, yeah, well, it's easy. You can spot a tourist a mile off. They're dressed ridiculously and they, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, okay, let's imagine we dress everybody the same. You can still spot the visitor because they just do little things like they will take longer to cross a road, you know, and... The, the, the fun stuff in terms of intuition in this area, I think, is that sometimes we can we can reach the answer without being able to explain how we got there. So if we watched a dozen people in a city and then we had to fill in a form, say, tell me the six locals and the six visitors, we might get it spot on. And if then somebody said, how did you do that? You're psychic. That's magic. And we can't explain it. But our brain has spotted the pattern without bothering our conscious minds with with the explanation. Oh, it's, it's so true. I'm, so I'm going back to school. This is my first semester back. I've been out of school for about 10 years, but I'm starting the PhD over again. And this time I'm going um, in straight clinical psychology. And I'm always fascinated by all the studies that I get to read and the things I get to partake in um, when I'm studying psychology and neuroscience. For that very reason, there's so many amazing published studies where individuals have these instincts, these insights, these understandings without ever being able to verbalize why, you know, that they'll have this quick processing where their finger, you know, they're meant to click on a button and choose column A or column B and they do it so quickly. And then when you ask them why they did it, they're like, I don't know, I was just supposed to, you know, and, yeah, but, but yeah. it's linked to something much deeper. And oftentimes it actually reflects reality. Yeah. Like, um, 
So you're going to do your, from the sounds of it, your second PhD in the Sahara. I'm just joining a few things right? you said together. Yeah, there, yeah. exactly. <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm so excited. I get, well, I'm nervous because I'm going to fall behind on my schoolwork. I know it. But I get to leave and we're recording this just so you guys know on September 29th. So only like about two weeks in advance. But I get to leave um, actually this weekend for a couple of film shoots for a new TV show. I don't think I'm allowed to announce it yet, but soon I'll be able to. And I'm going to the East Coast of the United States and then I'm going to Paris because... I'm very lucky and I love Paris. Um, and then I'm actually going to Morocco and we're going to spend some time out in the Sahara Desert and um, spend some time with some Bedouins there. And I'm, I'm just thrilled because it's a part of the world I've never, I've never been to Africa. I had to get all these new vaccines. I'm being overly cautious in my preparations. You know, I bought a, a water sterilizer pen and I have, you know, all of the things that I think that I need. <laughs> but I would love to know from you, I'm totally co-opting this conversation. Is there anything you <laughs> think I should keep my eyes out for? Are there any tips or tricks going into a very new landscape with, you know, what I think of as like some harsh things that I'm not going to be used to, to really yeah. experience it in a way that I, you know, that I'll, I'll, I'll have the best opportunities. Oh yeah. There's, there's so much fun stuff to, to look for. And I, I, I share your, your apprehension because I had exactly that same feeling when I traveled to, to Manhattan a few months ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it turns out it's a, it's a it's a safe and lovely place, but um, uh, but but that's you know I, I'm slightly more comfortable in the wilder places. But yeah, in, to answer your question, in, in places like the Sahara, um, it, it's uh, in terms of you know my 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 love of natural navigation. A, a great thing you can start doing is is making a map and compass out of everything you see because that will actually you know, make you more sensitive to anything that you might need in a, in a, in a, you know, a, a more serious sense. So if we think about a map, you know, water is obviously the, the scarce resource. And so a few drops of water will completely change the landscape. And you are bound to be spending some time, you know, near or between uh, oases or wadis or other places where there's water. And there are some, some really good ways of getting into the idea of using nature as a map by noticing how radically and how quickly things change with water. So, um, you know, you don't need giant palm trees sticking out the ground to sort of work out there's some water there. There are, there are subtler things going on. Uh, and when I walked with some Tuareg um, uh, across uh, the Libyan Sahara some, some years ago, I used to ask them, you know, because it was knackering, you know, we're sometimes walking 20 miles in a day and, and you know, you, you're quite keen at the end of it for your, your cup of ridiculous, ridiculously strong green tea. So I'd say uh -huh. to them, <laughs> I'd say to them, um, you know, I was a bit like a kid, you know, are we nearly there yet? You know, <laughs> um, and, and in the end, it turned out that culturally, they'd always say nearly there, you know, any, you know, their equivalent of saying like, it's, it's just around the corner, because they didn't want to upset me. <laughs> they didn't realize that being told that and then walking for another four or five hours is quite upsetting. But but anyway, the, the actual interesting thing happened was I had to solve the problem for myself, which was I noticed that the number of flies were telling me how long until we stopped. So mm. out you know, if you're if you're half a day's walk from a, an oasis, you won't see any flies really. Um, once you get once you get within a, a couple of hours walk, you start to notice the odd one, and when it's only half an hour away, you, you will see flies all over the back of the person in front of you, and that's true of all the animals. Um, another another fun little little tip is, you know, desert landscapes um, appear totally homogenous to our eyes until we get used to them. In the same way that if you took a Tuareg or a, a, a Bedouin into, you know, a city centre, their, their brain's not used to those patterns. So it all looks sort of similar and sort of difficult. To them, everything looks different. And, and one of the ways you can kind of get used to that difference is, is with a tiny bit of height. 
So if you look at a landscape and it all looks totally similar, if you can find any way of going up, you know, even five feet, ten feet, climbing onto a camel, you suddenly notice, you know, literally twice as much as you were seeing before. So it's one of those little desert tricks that you can be standing there thinking, I can't really see what's going on. And you just you just climb, you know, 12 feet up a small dune and suddenly you can tell exactly what's going on. Um, Oh, that's so great. And I think we are planning on riding quite a few camels while we're out there. So I I can't wait to see the difference between being down on the ground and being up with just a little bit of height. And I'm only five foot three, so a camel is going to give me quite a lot more height than I'm used to. You you may turn out to be the first person in history who enjoys riding camels. Um, (laughs) Man, every... Everything's exciting when it's new, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and you'll absolutely love the first ten minutes. But it's—I don't—I don't want to squash your your uh, your dreams. Right? <laughs> I I tried it for twenty minutes. I ended up walking uh, for the next ten days instead. Um, that is but, uh, hilarious. <laughs> oh man. Well, luckily, oh. we just have to do it for the cameras. We'll see. I bet you there we'll have a, a nice off-road vehicle waiting right behind. Us. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> You'll be aware you can use the stars to, to find direction, and there, and there are sort of um, diagrams in, in, in my books of how to do that. But a, a desert-specific thing is all sand dunes are effectively compasses because huh. anywhere on Earth, yeah, anywhere on Earth, if you've tuned into the prevailing wind direction, so where the wind is coming from most often, everything is sculpted by that. So it can be the tops of, the tops of trees or the, the colors on the edges of, of buildings, or it can be wave patterns in the middle of the ocean, or it can be sastrugi, ice ridges. But in the desert, of course, it's, it's, it's effectively sand waves. Uh, and they, they can be shaped over very long periods. I think from a sort of, uh, um, a sort of modern, you know, contemporary view, we think of sand as the stuff that comes off beaches and gets in our sandwich sandwiches yeah. and picnics and stuff but, <laughs> which, which of course it's doing but these dunes some of them have taken a thousand years to form they're, they're more like very very slowly moving mountains they um you know some of some of them were uh, around you know for hundreds of years before we we were and um, will be for hundreds of years after we were but the the simple rule because there's a whole beautiful complex art to interpreting sand dunes but the the way to get up and running is, is a simple you know shape in nature which is the, the direction the wind has come from will be the shallow angle and the, the steep, what's known as the slip face, because you can't walk on it because it's much mm. slipperier than the, is, is the direction the wind's gone towards. And once once you're you know accustomed to looking at that and you've using whatever method you want to, you've worked out what the prevailing wind direction is. Literally every sand dune's a compass, uh, and, that, and that's good fun to play with. Ugh. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. What how timely it is that we're talking right before I go on this adventure. <laughs> I'm totally, I know I'm totally selfishly um utilizing this podcast to get some insights before I go. Let's let's talk about some of the other things that we can use in other landscapes, not just desert landscapes. You mentioned the stars, and I think when we think about historical navigation, right? Pre sort of not necessarily even pre-scientific because uh, I don't know. We think about those early compasses and and early tools that um, explorers used to use, but but navigation across the board, you know, maritime navigation. Maybe we're always thinking about the stars. The you know, you look to the stars and then, you, or maybe the way that the sun rises and the sun sets. But those aren't the only tools that we have at our disposal, are they? 
No, I, I quite often say to people, start at the top and work down. So if you've got the sun or the stars, you want to use them because I, I learned the hard, stupid way that if you don't, you know, I, I could have been looking at some wonderful lichens and using them to find south and, and ignoring the sun. And then 10 minutes later, it's clouded over the rest of the day. So you kind of want to have some fun with those whilst they're there. And then uh, you come down and you tune into what the wind's doing, because if, you, if you've got a good sense of where the wind's coming from, it's actually quite hard to get totally disorientated. So you can hmm. use the wind or the cloud. Yeah, the wind or the clouds. The clouds will appear to come from a slightly different direction because the, the wind that pushes the clouds, when it touches the, the Earth's surface, it, it experiences friction uh, and it backs. So it, it turns to the left. So we, we, we see it come from an anti-clock. We sense it come from an anti-clockwise direction. But that, that's complicating things. Just in a general sense, you know, quite a fun city trick is, is if, you, if you're going to a meeting in a city uh, and you're using the subway or something like that, just tune into which way the clouds are moving. Just just note yourself. Oh yeah, I can see the clouds going from west to east today. Uh, and then you can set yourself a little challenge. If it's if it's not a sort of you know life critical meeting, if it's not a new job or something like that, you can you just get off a, a subway that's you know maybe a, a stop or two early, and just say, okay, I know I need to let's say walk you know north for for you know quarter of a mile to get to the place I want to get to. Then you you hop out of this subway in a part of town you don't know at all. And you go okay, I need to go north. I know the clouds are going from west to east. Okay, I need to head that way. Uh, you just have to be careful not to be staring at the clouds as you you cross the road as I've done a couple of times because that's the little but. <laughs> I love that. That's so smart. And you mentioned lichen growing on trees as well. If you're ever in the forest. Yes. The um. The breadth and, you know, the number of clues, I mean, in, in one of my books, in The Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs, there's 850 of these signs, which can sound a little bit daunting. Um, but but actually, most of, most of them are underpinned by some quite simple rules, mm-hmm. light and light and, and wind being two of the really big ones. So if we take if we take light, the sun is due south in the middle of the day, every day of the year for everyone north of the tropics, which is pretty much all of the, the US and, and all of Europe. Um and so that creates asymmetries in everything we see. Uh, I've talked about tree shapes, but if we think about it, if there's, if there's any relief at all, and, and the land is never perfectly flat, you know, it's quite hard to make a pool table, and, you know, the real world is never that flat. Yeah. So any bump, whether it's a, a small rock or a little patch of dirt or, a, you know, a plant that's only, you know, um, six inches high, is, is creating you know, different niches, different microhabitats. You get different things happening on one side and the other. So we get lichens need light, uh, so you don't find them deep in caves. And what we find is the amount of light dictates which lichens and even their colour. So most of the lichens you see will have a more vibrant colour if they're getting direct sunlight. Uh, And it takes a bit of practice to be able to use that as a compass quickly. But all I say to people is just, you know, if you happen to notice colour on the, the bark of trees... Just just start making a mental note. It doesn't have to be precise. Just sort of go, okay, it's roughly lunchtime. I can I can see the sun. So I know south's roughly that way. And I'm getting all these wonderful colors on the south side. And then you, if you do that enough times, the sun goes behind some clouds. And you just suddenly you sense, oh, that tree's telling me south's that way. And um, and that's true of pretty much every, every outdoor um, patch uh, there is. Oh, that's so neat. And, and what about, I have to ask, because you have an entire book dedicated to water. You gave me a little bit of insight about being in the desert, you know, at these oasis um, areas, that the animals and specifically the insects are going to be more abundant near the water. What other ways can we use water for navigation or just for appreciating nature, for understanding it a little bit better? 
Yeah, it's um, there. There are lots and lots of different signs, which are all uh, they all fit into this this very simple idea, which is if you think of your the patch, your favourite patch of water, it can be anything from a you know a, a, you know the, the Pacific Ocean to a tiny stream to a to a city fountain to a you know um, a, a park pond. Any of those you know uh, they're water. They count. If you think every single time you look at them, they look slightly different. It's impossible to look at water and see the same thing twice in your life because there's, there's just so much going on. It's the we stuff think, of many philosophers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's um, it, and if we if we approach it sort of practically, we can say why is that? And then suddenly we start to realise, okay, there are as in all these nature things, there are building blocks. So wind is one of them. Uh, wind will create ripples, and then we we look across and we say, well, why is there a dark patch there? Oh. That's a, a gust, uh, and it has a nickname, a cat's paw. I don't know if you come across that name, but, but sailors get to know cat's paws because there never will be a technology that can predict a gust is about to hit you in water as well as a cat's paw. You just look out there, and the light is reflecting off the, off the, off the normal waves and ripples in a certain way. Then when a gust touches the water, you get a dark patch. Then when waves and ripples hit something, uh, it can be a small stone in a pond uh, or it can be an island in the middle of the Pacific. It creates certain patterns through, you know, just laws of nature, just just basic physics, refraction, diffraction, reflection. Those three things, you know, people start to get, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder flashbacks to, to physics <laughs> lessons that went wrong. But but uh, probably not on your podcast, actually, but on a, on a few of them. But um, <laughs> but but once once we recognize those patterns, you see them everywhere. You know, you can even see them in a puddle. You see the same patterns that Pacific Island navigators sensed in their boat. They would close their eyes, lie on the deck of an outrigger canoe and go, Okay, I'm now picking up the reflected rhythm. You know, they've got their eyes shut and they're detecting land that's still a day's sail away and, and well out of sight. Um, wow. So that's that's the kind of premise of, of the, the water reading. You can go from something really tiny, like noticing the way that there's a meniscus on on uh, water in, in your glass, right up to the Pacific. And the the things you notice in the glass and the things you see on the ocean can swap. So. You know, the, the, the patterns you see on the, in the smallest bit of water are valid in the biggest and vice versa. So it, it really doesn't matter the scale of what you're looking at. There, there are signs and there are patterns that, that have meaning. And, and once you and I kind of think of it as befriending, them, you know, you, you, you know, one of my favorites, the, the glitter path. When when the sun is low, it, it reflects off the water and it's a classic. You know, you're you're on the West Coast there. So you, you hopefully get, you know, plenty of nice sort of sunsets over the water. And um, uh once you know, again, a basic law of nature that the bigger the wave, the wider the, the scattering of the light. So this beautiful glitter path is telling you how rough the water is, even if you couldn't sense it in any other way. And the, those are my favorite signs, the ones that are both practical and beautiful. And knowing the practical and knowing what to look for makes you stop, makes you look, makes you actually enjoy the, the beautiful uh, more. Uh, and that's the sort of stuff that gets me really excitable. <laughs> Well, and what I love about this is that water, you know, water is this naturally occurring resource. It's so important. It's fundamental to life. It's everywhere. Yet we have a strange relationship with water in our modern era because we sterilize it and we have all of these man-made containers for it. And, um, you know, there are parts of the world that are in massive drought. There are parts in the world that are, you know, have too much water in them right now. A lot of things are in flux, but all of these kind of tools that that you're helping equip us with have to do with the physical properties of water itself in any container. Because when I first asked about it, I was worried that you would only be talking about 
natural bodies of water. You know, like, well, you can navigate from a net, but no, like a reservoir in the middle of a city can tell you, or like you said, a puddle in, in made out of concrete in the middle of a, a road can tell you almost as many clues as the Pacific Ocean itself. Yeah, and that's where we build our relationship. So if you're if you're standing over a puddle, um, doesn't matter if you're in the middle of nowhere or, or in the middle of a city, and you look down at it, you notice, let's say, the pavement that's underneath it. But if you then start walking away from the puddle, you take a few steps away and you look back, you start to notice that you can just about see the bottom of the puddle, but you're now starting to see trees reflected in the distance. Uh, and you realize that there's, there's an angle there where uh, we get total reflection, which is why, and it starts to explain things like the color of the sea. So if you, if you imagine standing on a beach, you stare down, you're ankle deep in, in the sea, you stare down, you can see your feet. But if you stare out to the sea, the color you see is much more dictated by the sky. And, mm-hmm. and that, it's, it's not hugely shocking when it, I hopefully explain when like that, but when you realize you, you, you can teach yourself to, to sense that, to, to understand it better by looking at puddles. Um, as I say, the scale, instead of being a barrier, which I once thought it was, I thought, well, these, these techniques and, and tricks that I've learned over the years apply in big oceans, and these ones are relevant in ponds, and these ones are for rivers. They, once you learn them and once you befriend them, you find that actually it's impossible not to see them. If you, I, I've yet to come across a situation where there's, a, there's a, a patch of water, you know, bigger than a thumbnail, where I can't start to notice some of these, you know, these characters, these, these, these signs. Uh, you're doing science experiments in your bathtub all the time, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> all right. So let's talk for a few minutes about your new book, How to Read Nature, Awaken Your Senses to the Outdoors You've Never Noticed. What um, What is new about this book? You've written on this topic so much in the past and you've written kind of more specialized books like the book about water you've written a very good user's guide the lost art of reading nature signs where you said there was over 800 different um, signs available to us all the time so how to read nature awaken your senses to the outdoors you've never noticed what's new and what's different about this book it's um it's it's aimed at a, a group of people who maybe have that that sort of feeling because it's a very popular sort of message today that there must be something worthwhile in nature, but they're not convinced it's for them yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I do things like instead of most of my books are are aimed at the person who's converted and, and finds the idea of outdoor signs. You know, yeah, I like that. I want that. I want more. Give me, give me. You know, those. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, whereas this is different. This is this is like saying, okay, you know, you're you're prepared to invest a bit of time. You're going to give it the benefit of the doubt. And basically, I'm trying to, to show you the things that are irresistible about nature. So um, if we think of, um, you know, people are aware of the broadest changes in nature, like the seasons, but um, people are perhaps less well tuned to the, the, the very short term changes. So once we start to realize that actually the flowers are responding on a, on a not just hourly, by, but minute by minute basis, they change. Imagine there's a park you go to every day and you just sort of go like, okay, I've grown familiar with those flowers. Perhaps I've even taken the time to work out what they're called. Doesn't matter if you haven't. One of the things I say in the book is do not be put off nature by names because that, that's, a, that's, that's a shame. You don't need any names at all to, to have a lot of fun with, with nature. But you just happen to notice, oh, yeah, um, I get half an hour in this park every day and I, I notice at the start of it, 
the flowers are, are pointing to the left of that tree, and at the end of it, they're pointing at the middle of the tree, and you suddenly have tuned into a clock that's that's perhaps been by your feet for for years. Um, all this, all this, the lessons that we can um, we can take in a you know, there's nobody on earth who doesn't have an interest in relationships, uh, but actually. You know, there are an awful lot of people who don't necessarily want to read a book about relationships. There are definitely a lot of people who do want to read a book about relationships. And this is not a book about relationships, but, I, but, it, <laughs> but it is it is a fun way of reflecting on, on how nature deals with all the challenges we have in our lives. So, you know, nature has pretty much every flavor of, of how, you know, two people or in the case of nature, two organisms, you know, can get along. OK, um, you know, there are you know, emperor penguins where the, the, the dad, you know, suffers the the winter storms for months on end um you know which is a you know it's a it's a story i i tell to my my friends down the pub whilst uh, my wife's back at home looking after the kids no 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 it's uh, it, it's it's <laughs> i'm joking but what i mean is this there's you know nature's life is full of you know opportunities problems challenges we can put any label we want on that and nature has had to solve it you know, many millions of times over. So sometimes confronting our problems head on is not what we want to do, but but actually going out into nature and just sort of going, all right, then give me the answer. And, and we find it does, which which is, I think, good fun. Uh, well, Tristan, I think that's such a good close to this great conversation that we've been having so far. Um, I, I have to ask, though, I close every episode by asking my guests the same two questions. And of course, this sort of very specialized conversation that we've had makes me incredibly curious how you're going to answer these two because they're a bit big picture. Are you ready for them? I'm I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Oh, don't be. Don't be. Um, All right. Here we go. So there's sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, When you think about the future, and that can be in any context that's relevant to you, it can be the future of you know, humanity, the future of Mother Nature, the future of Earth, or just the future of you, your family, your individual life. Um, Number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night? What is the thing you're most concerned about, most preoccupied with, honestly, most worried about? And on the flip side of that, you know, what are you most optimistic and hopeful and excited about? Wow. Yeah. You, you weren't kidding. A uh, big picture. Uh, yeah. No, good, good questions. And I haven't been asked them before. Uh, the thing that keeps me up at night is the, um, the tendency of, um, um, things to compound. So we don't, we don't see change as a linear thing. I'm, I mean, you, you can see it manifested in so many different, different ways, but, um, you know, if, if I just, is it Moore's law that dictates that, you know, chip speeds double every, Three oh, yeah. years or so, you know, I, I forget the detail, but but that is not a straight line. That is an exponential change. And, and then if we think of the networking ability of everything else, there's obviously a huge amount of positive going on. But the thing that slightly uh, makes me mildly anxious, I'm an optimist, so so I don't. It doesn't keep me awake yet, but it, you know, there is a slight thing of anxiety there. Is that is the rate of change? If we look at what's happened in the last twenty years, it, we we are we are all very hopeful that that change is, is, is going to come out on the positive side, because if it doesn't, it's going to happen so fast that, it, you know, we won't see the blur is, is, is my gut feeling. But I'm an optimist, so, so I, I, I hope it's the, the change, the exponentially fast change is for the better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was the second question again? I got carried away thinking about that one. Well, it's sort of the flip side. In a way, you answered it, unless you have another answer, which is what are you most hopeful for or what are you most excited about? Oh, yeah, I, I think um, I, I have answered it in another sort of angle to it would be that I think there's a good there's a good track record of human beings overshooting the mark a bit, but then spotting it and then getting the best of both worlds and everything. So if I think of food, uh, there are lots of parts of the world where people are, are still struggling to have enough to eat. But in parts of the world, you know, Western parts of the world where we've, we've gone the other way, we, we've created problems of obesity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We notice it. And it is then possible, it's a challenge, but it is then possible to have a situation where we're not confronted with starvation. And we realize there's more to life than, you know, vast numbers of bland calories. So you can have a situation where you're not starving, but you're enjoying cooking something simply. And I see that I've seen that trend in food as we all have. And I think navigation is now, you know, one of those areas. It's a fundamental human skill. And we've assumed it's all about necessity. It's all about efficiency. It's all about speed. But actually, if you use a computer, to do all of the getting from A to B, you miss most of what's in between. So we're now at the point where we can have the best of both worlds. If we want to get to point B as fast as possible, the computers will help us do that. If we want to have a more interesting, perhaps slightly slower experience, spot what's in between A and B and think a little bit more about B as well, then we can have that as well. So that, that's my optimism, the best of both worlds. Oh, I love it. Well, Tristan, thank you so much for joining, to me, joining me today. It's been an absolute blast and I've learned so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Cara. I love the theme of your podcast. I, I didn't know it existed until I came across it, and uh, and it, it, it's one for me, definitely. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And I just know that my listeners are going to eat this stuff up, especially those who are interested in nature, but even those who stay all day inside at their desk or in the lab who want to go outside. Um, I think that this is a great user's guide to get our feet wet and to open up our appreciation. So, so again, I have to thank you and I have to urge everybody to check out um, Tristan's newest book, How to Read Nature, Awaken Your Senses to the Outdoors You've Never Noticed. By the time this episode airs, it will be available on Amazon. But if you are prescient and you somehow can read minds and you go to order it ahead of time, you can pre-order right now. Um, Thanks so much, Tristan, for joining me. Thanks so much, Cara. Have fun in the Sahara. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know I will. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. 